This week on Miranda Warnings, we're going to be talking about the exoneration of Anthony Broadwater, who was convicted of raping Alice Siebold in 1981 and was recently exonerated. We're very pleased to have on Miranda Warnings the two attorneys that represented Mr. Broadwater, Melissa Swartz, who's a criminal defense attorney with Cambrari and Brennick in Syracuse, New York, and David Hammond, a partner with Corden, Dotsler, and Hammond, CDH Law, also in Syracuse. Uh, Melissa and David, welcome. Good afternoon. Great to be with you. It's great to have you. First of all, congratulations on this exoneration of, of your client, Anthony Broadwater. Thank you. Great Andy. work. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, let me ask you uh, first, uh, tell us a little bit, how did Anthony Broadwater, an innocent man, um, get convicted in 1981? Anthony was convicted in 1981 based on essentially, two, well, not essentially, only two pieces of evidence. The first piece of evidence that was used at trial was the victim's identification of Anthony as the perpetrator of the rape. And there, there are several layers of, of problems with that identification that um, we can absolutely go into more detail on. The, the second piece of evidence was the testimony of a forensic chemist um, who employed microscopic hair analysis to testify that a hair recovered from the rape kit was consistent, quote unquote, consistent with a hair voluntarily provided by Anthony. And that in a nutshell is why he was convicted. So since there's really only two pieces of evidence, I do wanna go into each of them. First, the identification. My understanding is that uh, the identification occurred like six months later, after the fact that uh, the the victim here, Alice Siebold, thought she saw uh, the person that attacked her um, walking uh, walking around Syracuse six months later, uh, but then there was a uh, they did a lineup, and she identified a different person in the lineup. Right. What happened was Alice Siebold was brutally sexually assaulted in May of 1981. There's really no contesting that fact. Um, the, the physical evidence collected that, that evening overwhelmingly supports a sexual assault, um, and, and, and nobody doubts that um, she was sexually assaulted. She, she happened to be heading home that same day um, to Pennsylvania, where she was from, and she was headed home for the summer. And she returned, she made a decision, and she talks about that in her book, Lucky. Um, she made a decision to return to Syracuse University in the fall of 1981, in September. In October of 1981, she's walking down a, a, a street called Marshall Street in Syracuse. Anyone who's familiar with the area would, would know the, the street she's talking about. It's kind of the college campus, you know, place with, with shops and you know, bars and pizza places and, you know, memorabilia uh, scattered along the street. And uh, she sees a man from behind who reminds her of uh, her rapist is kind of how she puts it. And um, at that point, um, she decides to report eventually after a couple hours to the police 
that she's she's seen the perpetrator of of the rape. And uh, at that point, the police begin an investigation. They're able to figure out that the person that she saw was Anthony Broadwater, um, and he's ultimately charged and arrested about a month after she she sees him. So the initial identification came about five months later. Um, so first, you have the, the the time separation, and second, you have something that I think the research was certainly in its infancy in late 1981, uh, 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 the cross-racial bias that, that goes into a, a white person identifying uh, an African-American on the street, especially in a, in a passing chance encounter separated with so much time. Um, but on, on top of those factors, about a month later, uh, Anthony is, is standing in a lineup and Alice Siebold doesn't pick him. She, she picks the guy standing next to him and she signs on the you know, dotted line saying, I'm sure that's him. And then, uh, you know, and the defense attorney at the time thinks it's all over. Anthony thinks it's all over. But lo and behold, um, and this is something that you can read about in, in her book, uh, Lucky, the prosecutor comes in and long story short, gives her kind of a rah-rah speech about why she picked the wrong guy. Um, something that, that we alleged in our motion was prosecutorial misconduct. Um, so she's, she's kind of convinced that she has picked the wrong guy and she should have picked the other guy. And so of course at trial, given the kind of rehabilitation of the misidentification that, that ensued after the lineup, she comes in and very confidently in front of the judge as a fact finder, it's a judge alone trial, um, says, I'm absolutely certain that this man, you know, raped me, you know, and that testimony um, it, it, and she talks about in the book, how multiple, multiple people involved in the prosecution complimented her on being a fantastic witness. So I have no doubt that she was very compelling in her, in her testimony that day, but that in conjunction with a, a scientist coming in and, and, and purporting to have science supporting this identification resulted in Anthony's conviction. Yeah. So I wanted, there's a couple of things there. First of all, uh, so there was a misidentification in the lineup where she, uh, in the lineup, she thought it was uh, a different person. Uh, now, why wouldn't that be enough just to throw the, the, the case out against Mr. Broadwater? I mean, it is enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point. Right? I mean, why, how can they, where do they go? How can they go forward on that? They did. And I mean, I think that's the big question now, right? Why this particular prosecutor decided to move forward. And, you know, I don't know what you've read in terms of moving papers, but in this case, the district attorney, Bill Fitzpatrick, who wasn't the district attorney at the time, however, right. he was an ADA in the office, in his moving papers in response to R440, he pointed out what would be based on his experience, you know, 40 years of the proper procedure at that point. And when she made that, we keep saying misidentification, but that wouldn't, I, I feel like saying misID almost implies that our client was the person, you know, I don't like right. saying for this case. So the identification that she made of number five, when Anthony was number four, uh, DA Fitzpatrick in his moving paper says, you know, any reasonable prosecutor at that point would have spoken to Alice and said, listen, 
you know, we're starting anew with this case. The individual you picked out was not the individual that you picked out on the street and start the investigation over again. And they, they went full steam ahead. The prosecutor in this case ended up indicting it um, the same day, the same day right. that this happened. So it, there obviously wasn't any thought process that went into it and the thought process that happened. I, I just don't, I can't imagine a prosecutor thinking that this was okay. Right. Now, now when you, when you made your motion with respect to the exoneration that resulted in the exoneration, you actually had the support of the district attorney, uh, the current district attorney in making that motion. Is that correct? Yes, we did. We had a strong, we did a joint investigation of the case. Um, once we obtained the trial transcript, we sent it to him for him to, it was only 214 pages, which if you do appeals, everybody, you know, 214 pages for a trial transcript for a rape. I, I thought part of it was going to be missing when I saw it on the electronic filings. <laughs> so right. it's quick, very, very quick to read. We sent it to him as soon as he read it, which was very quickly, he contacted us and said he was going to pull the file and reinvestigate. Do you have any thoughts about why at the time this case kind of was pushed forward so uh, uh, stridently when there was so much, uh, such a weak case? We don't, I mean, that's an answer that we'd also like to know. We, we okay. really don't know. And um, I'd be happy to speculate. I'd I be guess. happy to speculate too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, please speculate. Overzealous prosecution, you know, that, that would be my speculation. I think, I think Alice Siebold, she legitimately was raped, right? There's right. no question of that she was raped. And I think that maybe a prosecutor really wanted to get some sort of closure, not that that could ever be obtained from a conviction for somebody who's been sexually assaulted, but to obtain some sort of closure for her that she, you know, decided to curtail her ethical obligations as a prosecutor. That's what I, that's what I speculate. And I think our record supports that based upon the conversation that Alice Siebold writes about in her memoir. I agree with. So I, I want to ask you about the other piece of evidence, which was uh, a microscopic hair analysis, which probably, you know, tipped the scale uh, with respect to this. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this. You've indicated that the analysis that was used is uh, at the time it was something of a of a junk science and now it's been discredited. So tell us a little bit about uh, that scientific uh, testimony that came in and and perhaps was the the clincher. So the at trial, the forensic chemist um, obtained a hair from Anthony Broadwater, which our client before trial at the day of the lineup, our client voluntarily provided head hairs and pubic hair. Um, he actually, and we have proof of this. You know, Anthony actually adamantly requested the lineup ID and very willingly handed over his hairs, which there's documents from both sides that that's what Anthony wanted to do, which I think is very telling. Um, so they obtain, you know, pubic hair, they compare. What comes out on the transcript is that there was a one-to-one -one comparison. I don't know if that's accurate, but there's a hair comparison of the hair that's obtained from the rape kit and the hair that is taken from Anthony Broadwater the forensic chemist does back into the 80s what 
we know is microscopic hair analysis. He looks under the microscope and he tries to match characteristics. And he, you know, generated a report saying that the hair that I looked at was consistent with the hair of Anthony Broadwater. He testified to that fact um, that it was consistent with, and that was the end of it. And I mean, back in 1980, hair analysis, microscopic hair analysis was pretty advanced science and it was heavily relied on across the country, you know, fingerprints, microscopic hair analysis, bite mark evidence, you know, this is before the advent of DNA and DNA technology. So- And how reliable is, is, is uh, do we know now the hair analysis to be? I mean, I think the 70 or more people that have been exonerated through DNA that were convicted on microscopic hair analysis would tell you absolutely not. Um, and I think that's very telling that uh, there's been so many, unfortunately, the biological evidence in this case was destroyed in the late 80s. So okay. we don't have an opportunity to do the DNA testing. But as soon as the Department of Justice, before the Department of Justice issued that report, I think the first DNA exoneration for microscopic hair analysis of somebody who had been convicted on that evidence was 2019. And then there was two more men in 2012. And that's what really jump-started. 2009. 2009 is the first one. And then there's two more in 2012. And that's what jump-starts this review that we now know ended up being, you know, a pretty mind-blowing report in 2015 from the Department of Justice, the FBI in conjunction with the Innocence Project on how faulty this testimony actually was when it was given in the 80s and the 90s. So, uh, so Mr. Broadwater is convicted. He goes to prison for 16 years? 16 right? and a half. 16 and a half. Um, uh, my understanding is that he, he, he um, didn't get out sooner because he never uh, admitted to uh, the the crime that he was uh, convicted of, and so certainly didn't show any remorse for something that he didn't do, and that may have held him back uh, a little bit longer. Is that correct? Correct. He went up every time he went up to the parole board. Uh, he he continued to deny the offense, and this is something that that happens, right? I mean, the, the system is kind of geared towards accepting responsibility so that you can successfully engage in, in the, you know, rehabilitation. That said, if you didn't do it and you have conviction to, to stand by your innocence, and, and I think there are people who admit to things I didn't do to get out of prison. And, but Anthony Browater wasn't one of those people. Right. He stood by his innocence and he continued to deny involvement in this crime until his conditional release date. So, right. so I am, am confident he would have been released um, much earlier, but for his insistence that he was innocent. Right. So then he would, then he spent another 24 uh, years or so. So this has been 40 years ago when the, the, the crime was uh, occurred. Um, now he's been out for 24 years with this, uh, you know, even though he's not in prison, this conviction hanging over his head. And he's apparently made made multiple efforts before to try to um, have this looked into without success. What was it about this time and your work that brought this uh, uh, to light? 
Well, I think this is one of the most fascinating aspects of this particular case. He, he really did everything he could within the system to, to address this. In 1983, he filed pro se uh, CPL 44010 motion, a collateral attack on his conviction, um, alleging ineffective assistance of counsel that was summarily denied. Um, in 1984, his direct appeal was denied by the appellate division, fourth department. Um, in 1992, he had saved up enough money to, to hire an attorney to file yet another CPL 44010 motion that was also summarily denied without a hearing. Um, and uh, he got out of prison and he hired an attorney to uh, look into a post-conviction motion. But unfortunately, it turns out he hired kind of a what appears to be a shyster who essentially took his money and ran and was later disciplined. Before that, he actually had written, he had wrote to the Innocence Project. Yeah. So around 96, um, he's a client of the Innocence Project, but the Innocence Project at that time, um, I believe their policy has changed, but, and I don't want to speak for them, but I believe that they only took cases where there was biological evidence to you know, help the exoneration. And as we know now, that biological evidence was destroyed in 1989. So I know that he was, you know, with the Innocence Project for a period of time. And that's when this unscrupulous attorney comes in. Well, even before that, you're right about that. And then he also sent off a check for $1,000 to Johnny Cochran, yeah. um, <laughs> which was returned. Um, and, and then, yeah, and then, and then in the early 2000s, he, he, somehow got involved with 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 an unethical attorney who was since disciplined and he's been prosecuted and things like that and and uh he just never heard from the guy after giving him i think about 1400 bucks which was a ton of money to anthony and his file yeah and, and yeah. his file was never found so then then finally the the maybe fifth attorney at this point he gets in touch with um gives up in you know circa 2006 because he can't find the guy's file, you know. Meanwhile, you know, in in 06, you know, the 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 realization that the forensics used in the case isn't really there yet. You know, I mean, certainly there's it's developing at that point. But remember, it's not until 2015 that the Department of Justice, along with the FBI, come out and kind of publicly acknowledge that okay we screwed up here. Um, so, so that explains why it took so much time. And then, and then it's 2021 and just the weirdest way that the case comes to us. Um, but, but frankly, the reason it, it ended up kind of having a light shined on it again is because there's a book that was written about it. And that book was in the process of being turned into a movie and um, someone involved with the movie began to you know for whatever reason ask questions about the book and that's when then ultimately we got involved and uh, anyone i'm confident that any decent criminal defense attorney who read the trial transcript would say okay this is uh this is going to get reversed so the person that was involved in turning the book into a movie uh obviously read uh what the book said and found some inconsistencies. Um, and then uh, it was actually through that effort that some new questions were raised about the 
the conviction in the first place. How did it make its way to you, the, the two of you, to now get involved, you know, almost 40 years later? Well, what happened is, I mean, it's interesting. So, so this guy that was involved with, with the movie production was calling around looking for a private investigator. And in my office, we have a couple of private investigators who, uh, you know, work in our office. We work closely with them every day. And he ended up contacting uh, an investigator named Daniel Myers. He was recently retired from the county sheriff's department. <clears throat> he was kind of starting out, hanging out a shingle as an investigator. Um, and I, I, I want to say we were contacted through our website. And the investigator went out, talked to him, and started investigating. And at that point, the the producer who had contacted us didn't know the name Anthony Broadwater. He only knew the name Gregory Madison. This is the the pseudonym that Alice Siebold used in in her book. So fairly quickly, I mean, within hours, the investigator, you know, was able to determine that Anthony Broadwater was the the actual defendant in the case. And ultimately, he he found Anthony. He went out and spoke to him. And you know, since I work every day with him, he came to me and he said, "Hey, you got to hear this. This guy's innocent. He didn't do it." You know, and this is a cop of twenty years opining someone's innocent after an hour long conversation. It certainly piqued piqued my interest. And within hours, I was on the phone with Melissa because in that initial interview, Anthony talked about the hair analysis and i knew then okay this is this is 100 a forensic case um and and melissa is someone who i i think is one of the best when it comes to um forensic applications in court at and and so i contacted her and, and she agreed with me and, and was excited about getting involved so how did so how did you approach the the hair analysis issue. Uh, so, I mean, it sounds like the information, you know, you said the, the file was missing um, after all these years. Uh, I know that the hair analysis methods now are discredited, but did, did what kind of investigation did you do to, to bring this to the court to um, get this court to look at it in, in a new light? So after Dave contacted me, he told me that he thought it, the case involved hair analysis. Um, and, you know, I told, I said, well, we have to get the trial transcript. So I looked on the electronic filings and saw that the transcript was available. Like I said, I thought it was only 214 pages. So when I first saw the docket, I thought some of it was missing, but it's sealed for 50 B because it's a sex offense case. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't be able to just click on it like I normally could and read it. So we ended up uh, asking Dan Myers to ask Anthony if he could go downtown to get his own trial transcript. Mm. And he went downtown, got the trial transcript, sent it to Dave. Dave sent it to me. As soon as I read the testimony um, in this very strange, you know, the case is, has so many twists and turns, to be honest with you, but. It became not about just the hair, by the way, yeah, at this point. But. Yeah, but so. Yeah. I, so, what, I so what were the other issues that. What were the other issues? Because obviously, you know, the misidentification and the hair uh, analysis, we knew that in by 2015, certainly were problematic. Um, what was it? What were the other issues that um, 
there's no other evidence in the case at all. Zero, zip, none. Um, okay. So once I read it, I, I coincidentally, back in 2015, I worked for the Onondaga County District Attorney's Office for Bill Fitzpatrick. And I was tasked with reanalyzing any of the cases that we found in that office that involved microscopic hair analysis. Hmm. So this is when I was on the other side. And we were, you know, the Forensic Science Commission for New York decided all the offices would try to find their own microscopic hair analysis cases and pull the transcripts, decide if the interpret to see whether or not the forensic chemist made a air category, you know, fit into one of the three air categories for microscopic hair analysis testimony, and then whether or not those convictions had other evidence, you know what I mean, that would kind of render that meaningless. And I was one of the attorneys on it. I was the only attorney on it with Bill Fitzpatrick, and we ended up using Westlaw to try to find those cases because unfortunately a mid-sized office district attorney's office there's no way you know they don't categorize case files by what evidence was used to convict the person you know there's not like right. a section in the storage that says dna cases microscopic hair analysis cases so the only way we figured we could do it was through westlaw and i think a lot of the other offices in new york ended up doing this and unfortunately, Anthony's case never pulled up because his appellate decision does not talk about the microscopic hair analysis. It only talks about the ID. So mm. we ended up pulling those cases. I reviewed those cases separately. So, you know, flash forward to now, I know a lot about microscopic hair analysis and what constitutes an error for testimony. And as soon as I read the forensic, forensic chemist testimony, I knew it was an error. And then I got to his testimony by reading all the other evidence and that's, and Dave at the same time was reading it. And that's when we saw that the only other evidence besides the hair was her bad ID. And, and other issues certainly popped out in terms of you're, you're, you're reading the trial transcript and it, and it's, and it's stunning. I mean, the, the prosecutor mm -hmm. is, is doing things like stressing her virginity in his, opening statement in his summation, um, which which kind of struck us as odd. There's a point also in the trial where the judge, while Alice Siebold is testifying, there's a, re a brief recess. Um, and, and that happens in the trial transcript. You see the recess. But around the same time, we pulled out the book Lucky and we were reading that, uh, obviously, in within the context of having read the trial transcript, it's a it's a very different read. And Alice Siebold talks about the judge in the middle of her testimony um, comes into the room with her and has this conversation with her, this very warm, pleasant conversation, very supportive, asking about her family. And this just was popped off the page to us. It was stunning, right? This idea of a of a judge having this. In a bench trial. In a, he's a finder of fact, <laughs> right. and he's sitting down with the victim in the middle of her testimony. She wasn't even done. And having this comforting, warm conversation with her. So there's all kinds of weird things like that that happen. Just the length of the trial itself. And the, so for the for what really stood out to me, and I wish I had the passage in front of me, but the trial prosecutor in the 80s, I mean, every prosecutors and forensic chemists knew the limitations of microscopic hair analysis. 
they didn't realize the limitations were that it was completely junk science, but they knew there were limitations in terms of you couldn't absolutely exclude everybody else. They couldn't say, are there other people in the world that have this hair? They couldn't say no. So they knew those limitations. And after the forensic chemist testifies that the hair is consistent with, which is an error in itself, I would argue it was an error in itself, but some may argue that's he didn't overstate the significance of it. The trial prosecutor in his summation has this passage where he's talking about the doctor that testified that did the rape examination of Alice. And he says, you know, you heard her testimony and she says consistent with, consistent with. Well, we all know here, and this is me, you know, ad-libbing what he says. Um, sure. We all know here that she was raped, right? And you heard her testimony consistent with. So just as you think, just as you interpret that consistent with terminology, that's how you can interpret the forensic chemist's testimony, the consistent mm. with. They're one and the same. So he was saying, hey, we know she was raped. Hey, we know this is his hair. And that's absolutely overstating what even at that time, you know, not now, not in hindsight, but at that time, he overstated the facts. If that was a jury trial, I think that could have mandated reversal for prosecutorial misconduct. Yeah, so, why? So this was a bench trial with just the judge deciding. Why wasn't this a jury trial in the in the first instance? Well, it's 1980, and it is the... 81, it's the 1980s, 81, it's the rape of a young white college student by a black man. And the okay. jury the jury pools here, we're going to most likely be a predominantly white and jury they pool. They still are today. They still are today yeah, in this I mean, county. It's, you it's, know? it's a dynamic of what you you deal with here. Yeah. And and certainly back then, that, that concern was even stronger than it is today. But the concern still exists today. I mean, for every defense attorney representing an African-American client, you worry about the jury. And that's precisely what was happening there. So his trial defense counsel, uh, I'm confident, recommended that this, this, this fair judge was his, his better shot. Little did he know that the judge, you know, I think had you know, five, five daughters. Five daughters. <laughs> You know, which, you know, it would have been strategically something I would have wanted to be aware of at that time, you know. We don't fault the trial attorney, though, for potentially counseling Anthony to go bench trial, um, because ultimately, you know, we know ultimately in New York, it's the defendant's choice of whether or not they do a jury jury trial or not. Um, but I think that would have been in 1980s. I think that would have been adequate advice. Mm. We don't fault so, him for the bench trial. So, so how, Mr. Broadwater now obviously is vindicated, uh, exonerated. He's obviously very pleased. Are there, uh, are there any additional steps now or next steps for Mr. Broadwater to try to rectify, uh, make an attempt at least to rectify what occurred to him? Yeah, I mean, what we absolutely can't get Anthony the forty years of his life that were taken away from him. We wish we could, we can't. We want him to be financially compensated, although that isn't going to make him whole. You know, I think we all go back to basic law school and talk about civil cases and, you know, oh, you've got to make people whole again. Um, we're going to try to do it financially. We won't be able to achieve that, but yes, we are going to file a court of claims 8B case against the state of New York. 
um, to for an unjust conviction. And we're also going to pursue other grounds against the people who uh, orchestrated this conviction. Um, the prosecutor that was involved in the lineup, you know, the police agency, anybody that has any liability, we'll be seeking compensation from them as well. What would you, what do you need to show? I mean, obviously a mistake, there was a mistake here. This, this he was, uh, he was wrongfully convicted. Um, and there was, uh, you know, obviously that you've, you've got him exonerated now, but what do you have to show in order to bring uh, a claim for monetary damages uh, to uh, provide compensation for for what's happened. Is it enough that just that it was it was they made a mistake and, and then you have a claim, or do you, do you need to show something more than that? So for the, uh, it depends what claim you're talking about. Um, obviously, if it's a federal civil rights claim, then we absolutely need to show misconduct on behalf of whatever whatever agencies we believe are liable for the federal civil rights violations. But if you're talking about the court of claims, um, you know, it's a very tailored statute. I believe it was written by extremely competent defense attorneys. Um, a lot of them had been involved in wrongful convictions. So it's very tailored in that the individual has to be exonerated under an enumerated section. Um, one of them is 44010-1G, newly discovered evidence. That's what Anthony was exonerated under and that the individual didn't contribute to their own conviction. You know, so there's been cases where someone has confessed and they have to fight that that was a, you know, a forced confession, a false confession. Um, we don't have anything like that in this case. Anthony never admitted any guilt. He never contributed to his own conviction whatsoever. So we're, we're hoping that, you know, the district attorney's office didn't fight us on vacating it because that was the just and right thing to do. We're hoping that the state of New York feels the same in terms of the Court of Claims Act. Okay. And what about uh, the, the, the other victim here, uh, Alice Siebold? Um, my understanding is that she's made a public statement. Has there been any uh, uh, personal communication between uh, her and Mr. Broadwater since this exoneration? No, there, there hasn't been any personal communication the, the apology um, came out. We happened to be with Anthony when the apology came out and, and his reaction was, I mean, it was, I mean, this guy, I mean, look, I, he is a good dude, honestly. Like, er, er, this is a guy who, who is pretty much destitute at this point yet still delivers, you know, food to food pantries on a, on a regular basis. You, you have a 30 minute conversation with him and you're going to fall in love with him. I mean, I, I totally understand why his trial defense attorney told me this has haunted him for 40 years. Anyone who knows him knows the guy's innocent. Right. And so his reaction to Alice Siebold's apology was absolutely stunning. I mean, he, 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 he cried and, he basically said, wow, that was a very courageous thing for her to do, you know, to the extent it was a sincere apology. I, I absolutely accept it, you know, and I appreciate it. Um, and he's always said, and, and he's very sincere. I mean, these aren't just, you know, I, I, I don't know 
how many people vetted Alice's apology, but I can tell you nobody vetted his response. It was immediate, it was from the heart, and it's how he really feels, and he continues to feel the same way. And so, you know, I think that says a lot about who he is as a person, you know, that he was willing to so quickly accept that. And he's always said his fight is with the courts and the kind of system that resulted in his unjust conviction. So, you know, he's not he's not really vindictive towards you know, the person who identified him on the street that day, you know, wrongfully so. Yeah, he recognizes he's an extremely empathetic, um, as are we, to to Alice's, the position she was put in as a young student away from her family um, who had been viciously raped um, and, and beaten. And the evidence, uh, there's nothing that, we could ever be said about her that would refute that. Um, I've seen the photographs. It's, it was a horrendous incident for her. Um, and to put blame on her, I find it, I find it difficult. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Dave and I think, or, you know, what you think or what anybody else thinks about Alice Siebel's involvement. And it matters what Anthony thinks. And Anthony's position is that he, you know, wishes, wishes her well and doesn't wish her any ill feelings and, you know, hopes that this doesn't re-traumatize her. And that, like Dave said, that speaks a lot about the type of person he is, which is an incredible person. Well, I'm certainly uh, uh, grateful to the two of you for coming on to Miranda Warnings to talk about this uh, very compelling story and also grateful for the work that you did to help uh, exonerate Mr. Broadwater. Uh, so uh, thank you for, for sharing these, uh, these thoughts with us. We have, uh, obviously, this is a very serious topic that we're talking about. We have something of a lighthearted feature called Music Book or Movie here on Miranda Warnings, where you can share uh, something that uh, is of interest to you. It could be related to this or, or uh, something else. Okay. You said it was going to be lighthearted. It can so be lighthearted. Yes, as lighthearted as it gets. As a new mother who is involved in a lot of dark cases, you know, I have a very heavy, I'd like to say, career. Um, my guilty pleasure is the Beverly Hills Housewives. Okay. And I urge any attorney to watch the season that just wrapped uh, because it involves uh, one of the housewives being entangled in the potential crimes, alleged crimes of Tom Girardi, who is a very well-known attorney. He was involved in the Eric Brockovich case. He's out of California. And really the entire season revolves around this. You know, did she know? What did she know? Who knows? Who's gonna get sued? Is she gonna, you know, testify against him? So I urge any attorney who wants to really just shut off their mind, but also stay in the law, but stay in lightheartedness to watch the season that just wrapped. Um, guilty pleasure, absolutely. I hope they get higher viewership just based on this podcast. Well, I'm sure they'll get a Miranda bump, I'm sure. You know, I understand, <laughs> I understand that there's a lot of legal issues involved in these uh, housewife shows. And uh, in fact, we've made an effort. I think the, one of the housewives, I don't know if it was Beverly Hills or somewhere else as a lawyer, uh, we tried to get them on. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe next season we'll be able to, to I think get that's them on. 
I think that's Orange County, but there's another Orange County. Yeah. Okay. Salt Lake City, which really isn't my jam. I haven't been watching it, but I think she's federally indicted. One of the women that's on Salt Lake City, but Beverly Hills Housewives. That's the intrigue. Everybody should watch it. All right. And uh, David. Yeah. So I was I was going to give for all the parents out there because because I've got a couple youngsters at home and spend most of my time with you know, YouTube videos on in the background. But I think I want to provide something useful for those of you who like good television, which is in increasingly um, more time consuming for some reason. But I did recently watch a show on HBO called White Lotus, which I found incredible. Absolutely. Mm. Did you watch that? I watched it. Yeah, It was in- absolutely incredible. It could just be that I haven't watched any TV in the past three or four <laughs> years. And I don't know what else is out there, but I highly recommend it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's only a, like a six hour commitment. So I'd say pick that up. Okay. White Lotus. White Lotus. Give me something to do. So it was uh, you asked for light. We gave you light. That's great. No, that's great. That's great. Uh, I appreciate both of those. Uh, Melissa Swartz, David Hammond. Thank you again for being with us on Miranda Warnings and sharing your thoughts on this uh, very important case. Thank you. It was our it was our pleasure. Thank you. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.